you're watching the news last evening on Channel 13, you saw our speaker, Dr. Jason Lyle, as they were giving coverage for the Southeast uh, Creation uh, Southeast Creation Conference that was held here yesterday in Birmingham. And what a privilege it was to hear uh, these uh, distinguished men who came and, and shared with us from their, from their learning. Uh, Dr. Jason Lyle is the Director of Research for at the Institute of Creation Research. His specialty, if you can imagine, is in solar uh, astrophysics, if I can say that. I'm glad that someone has the capacity to specialize in that and has made a number of scientific discoveries regarding solar photosphere. Dr. Lyle was instrumental. Many of you have been to the planetarium at the Creation Museum in Kentucky. He was instrumental in developing the planetarium there. So this man, I don't know what he does in his spare time, but he has a lot of things, his hands in a lot of, of areas. And we praise the Lord for those who the Lord has allowed to study and to put into language that we can understand. I can assure you that I could not have majored in astrophysics, but I'm glad that somebody did. And I, I say that sincerely and that can break these things down and, and explain to us uh, all because the scripture tells us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And uh, all of this points to the gospel of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. From Genesis 1-1 to the last amen of the Bible, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what he says about anything is true, and especially uh, these uh, things of creation. And I, I appreciate uh, these men. They often, I never listen to them without them saying something I hadn't thought of that helps in explaining these things, or at least answering questions in our minds. One thing we must realize, though, the secret things belong to the Lord, don't they? And obviously there are a whole lot of secrets that uh, he will not reveal to us in this life. We'll have eternity to sit at the feet of the Word. The Word made flesh, he dwelt among us. The Word was there in the beginning, and he will be able, able to forever uh, d discuss these things with us and show us these things. I have the feeling, however, that we'll be so amazed in his presence that a lot of these questions won't be questions anymore, will they? Well, let's ask the Lord to bless the ministry of our brother as he comes to us today. Now, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for what we've heard and how our hearts have been stirred to think about what you did. Oh, listen to our wondrous story that though we were lost, you came from glory to pay the awful cost. May we not only sing it, but may we live out these truths this week. You'll give us many opportunities to speak for you and to live out the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that in this room, those who may not know you savingly, they may not be related to you by the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would reveal them uh, these things to them, even as we're discussing uh, science and other things, because we know that you're the source of all knowledge and we pray that people will be pointed to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now bless us in this hour. Bless our dear brother as he comes to preach and speak. Would you give him clarity of mind and help him to convey those things that uh, we need to hear and that you've laid on his heart? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, folks. It's uh, great to be with you today. I am Dr. Jason Lyle with the Institute for Creation Research. And it's uh, my pleasure to come before you and talk about your origins matter. Your origins really do matter. What we believe about origins of the universe, origins of life on earth, it makes a difference in terms of how we live today. And uh, I want you to consider the United States of America. We have the most Christian churches, the most Christian college, Christian bookshops, 
resources, Christian media of any nation. And yet for all of these Christian resources, would you say we're becoming more Christian as a nation every day or less Christian? Everywhere I go, people say that. Yeah, everywhere I go, people say that. And, I, and it's, it's hard to argue with that when we take a look at the way, you know, the recent court decisions and everything. It's, it's, it's very sad. And, and people say, but what does that have to do with origins? And I want to suggest to you it has a lot to do with origins. Because you see, the real issue behind all of these problems that we're having in our society is the same issue that people have with origins. It's a question of who are, who are you going to trust? What is your ultimate commitment? Is it God's word or man's word? Ultimately, your, your foundational faith will, will either be in God's word or in man's word, right? Because if you're going to reject God's word and choose something else, it's going to be inevitably man's word. I want to suggest to you that the loss of biblical authority is the root of the decline of Christian America. The reason that we're seeing our nation become a, becoming a pagan nation is because people don't think they can trust the Bible as the inerrant word of God. And let me tell you, those attacks begin in Genesis. That's the book of the Bible that is more mocked and scoffed than any other book. That's the one where, you, where people will say, well, no, science has proven millions of years of evolution is the way that life came about. You can't possibly trust this old, this old book, book of myths and so on. And even a lot of Christians have been duped into believing that, really. They say, well, you know, Genesis is just a book of allegory. and so No, no, it's literal history, and that's what I want to talk about today. You see, the idea of evolution is really man's word, man's idea of how life can come about apart from God. And that's what I talk, that's, when I use the word evolution, that's what I mean. I'm referring to this idea that, that microbes, something like bacteria, eventually became people through millions of years of mutations and natural selection and so on, as well as all other life. On Earth, you're related to a turnip. If evolution is true, that's your cousin. And you know, I, I was speaking to a group of atheists one time, and I said that. And and after what, afterwards, one of them came up to me and he says, "Aren't you aren't you kind of poking fun at us? You know, saying we're related to a turnip?" I said, "Well, isn't that what you believe?" He said, "Well, yeah." And I said, "Well, there you go then." <laughs> you know, I said, "If it sounds silly to you, maybe you need to reconsider your beliefs. You know, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just pointing it out." And uh, you know, there there can be very intelligent people that believe in evolution, but it's not because of their intelligence that they believe in evolution. It's because that's what they've been taught and they haven't really considered uh, the alternative. The fact is, though, what you believe about origins will have consequences for your worldview. If Adam is in your past, if God made you, then he owns you and he's got the right to make the rules. If Ape is in your past, if you just rearrange pawn scum, then you make your own rules, right? You, you, nobody owns you. You're not responsible ultimately to God. And so you see how you could end up with either absolutes, absolute morals from God, or Relative morality. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes, as they did in the time of Judges, which is really a lot like the time that we're experiencing today in our nation. Uh, according to creation, God's word is truth. That's the foundational. That's a foundational doctrine. If evolution's true, then man, independent from God, determines truth. And which of those two you believe? There will be consequences. If creation is true, you'd expect to have laws. Why? Because there's a lawgiver. God made us. He made us in His image. He's communicated to us. And he has the right to make the rules for us because he, he's the creator of all things. And he will hold us accountable for our actions. And so I have a very good reason to obey God's laws. Uh, or marriage, where does that idea come from? Where's this idea of one man and one woman united by God for life? That goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? It's, it's in Genesis where God instituted the family unit. God made the man and the woman, and he united them. And that's where we get our idea of marriage. Genesis 2 explicitly teaches that. That's why we have marriage today. God instituted that back in creation. Standards, standards of behavior, standards of clothing. I noticed you're all wearing clothes today. I appreciate that. I'm sure you do too. Um, where does that idea come from? 
Well, you know, because originally it wasn't that way, but because of sin, you know, God provided clothing as a temporary covering of our shame, a a symbol of of Christ who will come and and actually deal with the problem of sin, or meaning of life. Why is it that human life is, is valuable and, in fact, more valuable than animals? That's something that's really been turned upside down today in our society. People will slaughter babies with, like, nobody cares, and then they'll get upset when a lion's shot. Now, I think we ought to be concerned about animals and animals on the verge of extinction. But how much more should we be concerned about human beings because we're made in the image of God? Animals are not. God cares about animals too, but we're made in God's image. And so that's why human life is, is special, it's sacred. If evolution's true, however, you get a counterfeit set of standards, don't you? If evolution's true, why would you have laws, really? I mean, if you think about it, laws are designed to protect the weak from the strong. But evolution is all about the strong dominating over the weak, isn't it? Natural selection, survival of the fittest. Laws are anti-evolutionary by their very nature. Why not do what you want with sex, homosexual behavior, pornography, what have you? Why not do these things if we're just animals? Because animals pretty much do what they want. And why, why not abort babies, get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids? What's the difference if we're just evolved animals? By the way, Jesus understood that these foundational doctrines go back to Genesis. Jesus often quoted from the Pentateuch, especially Genesis. and Many of his references were to Genesis. In fact, in Matthew 19, when the religious leaders came and were trying to trip up Jesus and trying to you know, tempt him, and they were saying, what about divorce? To explain marriage, you know what Jesus quoted? He quoted Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Absolutely. He understood that these were foundational to the, the principle of marriage. See, what's happened in our society is these evolutionary termites have come in in the minds of people. And many people have been persuaded, oh, you can't believe that, that Genesis is true because, hey, the scientists believe in millions of years of evolution. And people get intimidated by that. The fear of man brings a snare, the Bible says. Well, people get intimidated and they think, well, yeah, creation can't be true. Well, then why would you have these biblical laws? Why would marriage be one man and one woman for life if God didn't really make Adam and Eve? If, if, if Adam and Eve, if that's just a story, if that's just a fairy tale, and marriage is just a cultural trend, well, hey, the culture changes. You know, what's, in, what's fashionable today is not what's fashionable next year and so on. If marriage is just a cultural trend, why shouldn't the definition of marriage change? And boy, that's not a hypothetical issue. That's exactly what we're seeing in our culture today. Because people think marriage is just a cultural trend. It's not. It's foundational history. God made marriage, and he did that back in Genesis. And so you see a lot of people think, well, I don't have time to worry about origins, Dr. Lau, because look at all these problems we have in our society. Marriage is under attack, and the sanctity of life is under attack. And there is a connection. People have lost confidence in the word of God because of these attacks that start with Genesis, the foundation of all these Christian doctrines. Genesis isn't any more inspired than any other book of the Bible. It's all the inerrant word of God. But Genesis is foundational. God expects us to understand and interpret these other books in light of the history that he gives in Genesis. That's why he put it first. That's why he gives us that foundational history of the universe. But it's very, it's very sad that many Christians have been tempted to say, well, maybe God didn't really create that way. Maybe you know, some sort of guided evolution. Maybe God used evolution or something. And then you can't defend those Christian doctrines, not consistently, not logically. You can't. Because if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We need to recognize our foundations are under attack. It used to be in the United States of America, because of our Christian heritage, even non-Christians would have a certain degree of respect for the Bible. I've heard non-Christians refer to it as the good book. They understand that it has some value. But boy, has that shifted lately. 
And it has to do a lot with these attacks on our foundation, the book of Genesis. It used to be you could say abortion's wrong, homosexual behavior's wrong, adultery's wrong. People say, well, of course, I understand that. The good book says, says so. But today people say, not according to my rules, because they're not standing on God's ground. They're standing on man's ground. Man, independent from God, allegedly determines truth. That's where we're at today. And I'm sorry to say many Christians really stand on this ground. They'll embrace the Bible to the extent that it's compatible with the way they want to live. And then they'll reject the portions that they don't want to accept. And, you know, I don't want to be holier than thou. We, we all are tempted to do that. There's no doubt about that. We, have, we all have a sin nature. We're saved by grace, after all, not by merit. But uh, that's, that's, it's a trap that's all too easy to fall into. And that's why you'll have many Christians say, well, maybe God used evolution. And I don't think that Genesis is real history and so on. I think Genesis is just poetic or something like that. Well, Genesis isn't written that way. Genesis is written as history. You know those verses that you love to read before you go to bed, and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and they begets so-and-so. Those genealogies like you find there in Genesis 5. Well, those verses, boring as they may seem, they're there for a reason. They're there to tell us that Genesis is real history, that these are real people and that they lived, and it tells us the name of their children. And in many cases, how long they lived between, you know, when they had their first child and so on, and how long they lived. Those verses are there for a reason. They're there to tell us that Genesis is real history. This, is, this, is, this really happened in history. And, uh, uh, you know, those people who say, but, but Genesis, that's just, you know, it's like a parable, right? I mean, not everything in the Bible is literal. Jesus told parables. Well, that's true. The Bible says that Jesus spoke in parables. But Genesis is not written in the style of a parable. Uh, par- parables don't list usually specific names. Usually there was a certain man and so on. And they certainly, they would never list a genealogy. That would be less than useless in a, in a parable. That would be a distraction. Because a parable is supposed to make a spiritual point using something that we're familiar with in the, in the physical world. Uh, no, that's not the way Genesis is written. You wouldn't have a long list of genealogies in a parable. That wouldn't make sense at all. Or they say, well, you know, there are sections of, of the Psalms where the trees clap their hands or your know, stars fall from heaven and so on. You don't take that literally. Well, I understand that there are sections of the Bible that's, that's, that are poetic and we don't want to push them in a hyper-literal sense. I understand that. But Genesis isn't one of those sections. Genesis is not written in the style of Hebrew poetry. I mean, think about this. This would be a terrible poem, wouldn't it? And so-and-so begets so-and-so. That wouldn't make any sense at all. And it's even more obvious if you know something about the Hebrew language. Uh, that Hebrew uses a particular style. It's easy to recognize Hebrew poetry because of the parallelism. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Uh, we read from that earlier today. It has that, that two-fold pairing. You don't see that in Genesis. It's not written that way. It's, it's written as historical narrative. It's written like a history book. Now, how do you read a history book? You pick up a history book. It says George Washington rode his horse into battle. You say, well, I wonder what that symbolizes. I wonder what the horse stands for. I wonder what George Washington, what that really means. Well, it means what it says. It's history, right? That's how we're to read a history book. And so here's my question then for Christians who compromise and say, well, these genealogies, they're just symbolic or something like that. They're not literal. I don't think Adam's a literal person. You know those genealogies lead up to Christ? That's interesting. So here's my question then. You say you're a Christian? Yes, I believe in Jesus. You believe in Adam? Oh, no, I think he's just a metaphor. Well, the Bible says Jesus is descended from Adam. You're saying Jesus descended from a metaphor? That doesn't make any sense, does it? You don't have to know a lot about genetics to know that a real person can't be descended from a metaphorical one. That's not going to work, right? What would a transitional form between a metaphorical person and a literal person look like? That doesn't even make sense. Not at all. It's, by the way, it's theologically important. It's theologically crucial that Jesus Christ is a descendant of Adam, and so are we all. The Bible teaches that. Because you know that makes Jesus our blood relative. Yeah. 
And that's important theologically because the Bible says only a relative can save us. Did you you understand that? That's the concept of the kinsman redeemer. Only a relative can redeem you. It's because we are all of one blood, the Bible says in Acts 17, that we're all of one blood, that Christ's blood counts for ours on the cross. That's why the Bible says the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. It says that in Hebrews uh, 10, verse 4. Blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. It was used symbolically in the Old Testament to symbolize the Savior to come. But the reason that Jesus can pay for our sins is because he's descended from Adam. And because you're descended from Adam, he can pay for your sins. But if Adam's not a real person, if it's just a metaphor, then Jesus might not be your relative, in which case you're not eligible for salvation. Wow, that's a problem, isn't it? You see how the gospel message actually goes back to a literal genesis. It's because what Adam did, that we're all, we've inherited this sin nature. We want to sin. We enjoy sinning. And that's a, that's a problem. God's got to come into our life and change our heart and, and, uh, and save us if we're going uh, to be with him for eternity. So you see, it's another way to put it is which Adam is non-essential to the gospel? Is it the first Adam that made it necessary for us to be saved? Or is it Jesus Christ, whom the Bible calls the last Adam, who made it possible for us to be saved? You see that connection? Without the first Adam, the last Adam really wouldn't make any sense. And, and people are saying, well, are you saying I, I have to believe in a literal Adam to be saved? And no, I'm, the Bible makes it clear we're saved by God's grace, received through faith in Christ. And I, we don't want to add to that by... By, have, you know, by saying, and you need to have perfect theology as well. That being said, let's not continue to live in sloppy theology just because God's saved us. Out of gratitude, let's try and get our theology right, right? And we need to be sanctified. And so I, what I am saying, though, is that salvation would make no logical sense if there's not a literal Adam. It makes no sense. Because this whole idea of death being the penalty for sin, that's a Genesis concept. And if death is not the penalty for sin, if Adam really didn't institute or if, if Adam didn't, uh, if his sin did not, was not the reason that God brought, punished him with uh, death, then why is it that Jesus had to die on the cross if death is not the penalty for sin? You know, we, the gospel is the good news. The good news is that Christ provides salvation from sin. But in order for that good news to make sense, you really have to know something about the bad news. You have to understand that man is lost and we need to be saved from our sin. Without that bad news... The good news is meaningless. It doesn't make sense. What are we being saved from? A lot of unbelievers have that issue. They'll say, well, why do I need Jesus? I'm basically a good person. You've heard people say things like that. There's a person who doesn't understand Genesis. Because if you understand Genesis, how many sins did it take to ruin the world? One. Absolutely. One sin. And we've all sinned at least once. Some of you even two or three times, right? That's a problem. You see, God can't let us into the new heavens and the new earth. They're going to remain perfect forever. One sin would ruin that. That's a problem for us. You see, you explain the bad news, and then you can explain the good news, the gospel message. So when we're witnessing, I, need, I think we need to say, yes, I do have some good news to share with you, but first the bad news. Let me tell you why you need a Savior. Let's go back to the beginning, back to Genesis. You see, the Bible really is the history book of the universe. It's primarily historical in nature. It does have poetic sections. It does have parables. It's primarily history. That's what most of it is, is written in that way. And even the epistles are written in a literal style, even though they're not... Um, historical per se. But uh, here's, here's the question that Jesus asks of Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus, Nick at night, right? He comes to Jesus and by night because he's a, maybe a little bit embarrassed there. And Jesus asks, he asks him, if I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe, how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? That's a very profound question, isn't it? If, if, if Nicodemus can't even accept what Christ is saying about ordinary, literal, physical things, then how is he going to accept what Christ says about heavenly things? And that's the question I have to ask 
to Christians today who compromise and say, well, I'm not sure about Genesis. Because the same Bible that teaches that God created, and he created, and there's a flood and so on. I mean, those are historical things. Those are earthly things, things that happened in earth history. But the same Bible teaches how to be saved. The same Bible teaches moral things as well. I find people like the morality of the Bible for the most part. Even atheists will say, thou shalt not steal. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> thou shalt not murder. That's pretty good too. The Bible got that one right. Most people appreciate the morality the Bible teaches. They want to reject the history. But Jesus says, how can you trust one without the other? Right? If, you say, if, if God didn't get the details right in Genesis about regarding creation and so on, how can you trust that he got the details right on how to inherit eternal life? That's what I want to know. It's the same Bible. People want to embrace, for the most part, the morality the Bible teaches. They want to reject the history. But we can't be saved apart from history. Your salvation depends on the historical fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And that was made necessary because of what happened back in the Garden of Eden, another historical fact. People want to have it both ways, though. Maybe to be academically respectable, a lot of people want to say, yes, I'm a Christian, but oh, I believe in evolution, too. That's the, way, that's the method God used. Well, if you're going to try to get those two different standards to agree, you're going to have to modify one of them. I find people tend to modify Scripture. Isn't that the truth? They'll tend to say, well, I don't think God really meant this in Genesis. Well... God knows how to communicate after all. He really does. I found that tolerance for secular ideas is growing in the church, and so is intolerance for the word of God. We used to use a highlighter to highlight the sections we wanted to memorize, and now people are far too inclined to use a blackout marker to black out the sections we don't like. But God never gave us a line item veto on Scripture. Not at all. It's all God's word. We need to take it that way. And if you think about it, this, how, did, how did Jesus deal with this in his earthly ministry? I mean, he's an example for all of us in terms of how we should defend the Christian faith, when, when the religious leaders who should have known better, when they had their views of God's word, where they had reinterpreted to match their opinions, how did Jesus deal with that? Did he say, well, that's not my personal opinion, but, you know, let's, let's agree to disagree on these things. Or did he say, well, you know, this is not a salvation issue, so don't worry about it. Uh, your interpretation's fine, my interpretation's fine. Let's all just hold hands and sing kumbaya. Is that how he dealt with these things? Not at all. He said, it is written. Have you not read? Jesus stood on the authority of the word. Haven't you read? He's saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees, haven't you read in scripture? And it, he, what he's doing there, it's interesting. He's, he's actually using a mild form of sarcasm. Of course they had read it. They were the religious elite. Of course they'd read the scriptures. Jesus was pointing out they weren't applying what they had read. Okay, he's using a little bit of sarcasm there. Kind of interesting that the Lord does that. Uh, he's, but in any case, he always stood on the word of God as his foundational standard, which I think is interesting because Jesus is God. And so he could have said, because I'm God and I said so, and that would be fine. He could have done that. But he appealed to the written word as his ultimate standard. Of course, he's the one that inspired it to begin with, so he can do that. But my point is, I think he did that as an example for us. We can't say, I'm God and I said so. But we can say, God has said in his word. And so that's the way it's going to be. You can think of the uh, culture war that's going on today, a bit like these castle diagrams here. You've got the castle of Christianity, and you've got the castle of secular humanism. Those are the two big faith systems, the, the primary ones in our nation today. And how are we fighting? And, of course, well, creation, uh, Christianity founded in creation. God's word is true from the beginning. Christian doctrines going back to Genesis. Uh, humanism really is founded in evolutionary thinking. That life evolved and so on, life constantly getting better, improving and so on. And uh, 
There are, of course, some cultural problems that stem from that way of thinking. They're listed up here, these different balloons, abortion, racism, and so on. How are we fighting this battle? Not as effectively as we could be. We're asleep at the helm, oblivious to the fact there's a war going on, shooting in the wrong direction entirely, shooting ourselves over things that maybe aren't so important, shooting our own foundation, representing Christians who say it doesn't matter what you believe about Genesis, boom, uh, hitting our own foundation. Of course, we're popping balloons too, and that's okay. It's not wrong to point out that abortion's wrong and racism's wrong and so on. I mean, we can do some of that, but my point is if that's all we're doing, you're not going to win the war that way because the secular humanists are smart. They're aiming at our foundation. They're saying, well, you can't trust the Bible because we know Genesis is false. Science has proven millions of years of evolution. Now, that's not the case, of course, but that's what they claim. And so they're aiming right at our foundation, and to some extent we're helping them. That's not an effective way to win the battle, not at all. Uh, what can we do? Well, we can, we can pop balloons from time to time. That's fine. But you see, if that's all we're doing, it's not going to work. Christians have spent millions of dollars combating abortion. We still have abortion because we're not dealing with the root issue. Uh, abortion would make sense in an evolutionary universe, the strong dominating the weak. Why not abort babies, right? It's in, the, it's in the Christian worldview where we dare not abort a baby, kill, murder someone who's made in the image of God. We don't want to do that. And so we need to uh, do some damage to evolution, point out that evolution really is a bankrupt, scientifically bankrupt conjecture. It's not something that has good scientific support when you really understand it. We need to point out that, that some of the problems with secular humanism, defend ourselves against these arguments uh, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, right? We need to, to defend the Christian faith against that. Repair the damage that's been done in, in Genesis and show people you can trust in God's word from the very beginning. And God does know how to communicate. He really does mean what he says in Genesis. He really did create these animals. It's not just an allegory for evolution or anything like that. Creation really is historically accurate. And the science lines up with that when you understand it. What about the time scale of creation? That's an issue where a lot of Christians have trouble with that because, of course, the Bible says that God created in six days. It tells us what he did on each of those days of creation. Human beings are made on the sixth day, and we know from those genealogies that you love to read before you go to bed, and so-and-so begets so-and-so. You add up the ages, and you find about 4,000 years between Adam and Christ, and Christ's earthly ministry is about 2,000 years ago. So something like 6,000 years is the age of the universe. And boy, does that bother people, because in, in all this, just virtually all the public school systems in the United States, they're taught billions of years. The Earth's 4.5 billion years old, allegedly, and they're taught the Big Bang, and Big Bang is the, thir the universe is supposedly 13.8 billion years old. The number changes a little bit from year to year, but that's basically the idea. And people get intimidated because they think, well, that's what the scientists say, and the scientists are really smart, and so maybe we ought to trust them. Well... Um, I, I, think there's a, I think we should be respectful of people who have education and so on, but we need to remember God's infinitely smarter than anyone on earth, okay? And so we need to trust his word first. That's primary. And if people deviate from that, that's their problem. God is not going to be wrong about these sorts of things. But people get intimidated and they think, well, maybe I'm reading the Bible wrong. Maybe I need to reinterpret it. And there, there's nothing wrong with going back and double-checking the text to make sure that you're understanding it right. And, and science can prompt us to do that. That's okay. We can do that. But when the text is clear, we need to accept what it says. That's what it comes down to. And I want to suggest that the text is clear about the time scale of creation. But people get intimidated. They see in the textbooks millions of years. You'll find that in just about all the biology textbooks or geology textbooks and so on. Millions of years of evolution. And a lot of Christians get intimidated. They say, well, I don't believe in evolution, but maybe God created over millions of years. And that's why we find these fossils and so on. 
well, where are you going to, how are you going to work that into Scripture? Because, I mean, there's the six days of creation. You, you can't put the millions of years in between Adam and Christ because that would destroy those genealogies, right? You can't say, and so-and-so beget so-and-so, and then a million years later they beget so-and-so. That doesn't make any sense. People try to put the millions of years into the six days of creation because that's the only way they can, can, they, they can reasonably do it. And, uh, and uh, so they'll try to put them in between, uh, or maybe they'll put them before the beginning. They'll say the millions of years happens before the beginning. But that's pretty easy to refute because if the billions of years happened before the beginning, then the beginning wouldn't be the beginning, right? Yeah. Or they'll try to put it in between verse 1 and 2, the so-called gap theory. I'll come back to that. One of the most common, though, is they'll say maybe the days weren't really days. Maybe they were vast ages, hundreds of millions of years each, or at least thousands of years each, right? And uh, I'd say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't really indicate that, though. The Bible just says days. And they say, oh, but... Dr. Lyle, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 8, one day is with the Lord is a thousand years. There you go. They might have been a thousand years each, right? And, of course, that's horribly out of context because 2 Peter 3, 8 is not addressing the days of creation at all. It's not, and it's not, certainly not giving you permission to change the days of creation a thousand years. And I, I think it's interesting, too. People only quote the first part of the verse, never the last part. What does the last part say? One day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. It cancels that right out, you see. People only take the first part out of context to try and make time longer. They never take the second part out of context to make time shorter. And uh, they'd end up with a different conclusion if they did. And by the way, changing the days of creation to 1,000 years would make the earth 12,000 years old instead of 6,000. It doesn't get you anywhere close to the millions of years that people think they need to add uh, to Scripture. Uh, no, Second Peter 3.8 is telling us that God is beyond time. That's why a day is, is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day to God. He's, that's why he's so patient in, from a human perspective, delaying judgment so that many can be saved. That's the context of Second Peter. It has nothing to do with the days of creation. The Hebrew word for day is yom, and it's used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament of the Bible in singular and plural form. And I find the only place people question, what does day mean, is in Genesis. Isn't that true? You don't hear people sitting around having Bible studies about Jonah and the whale and saying, now, how long was Jonah really in the belly of the whale? Were those ordinary days or thousands of years? Who can say? We can't tell, right? He might have been in there a long time. People just don't do that, do they? Or how long did Joshua really take to march around the walls of Jericho? Whether it's ordinary days or thousands of years? Who can say? We can't tell, right? <laughs> people just don't do that. Not at all. They'll say, but Dr. Lyle, the Hebrew word for day can mean a long period of time. It doesn't have to mean a 24-hour day. And that's true in certain contexts. But by the way, the main meaning of, of day, yom, is day. That's overwhelmingly the main meaning of it. And people say, oh, but it can mean in, in other contexts. Well, yeah, the English word for day can mean a period of time longer than 24 hours. You might say, back in my father's day, it took 10 days to drive across the Australian outback during the day. Now, the first part there, back in my father's day, well, that would be a period of time longer than 24 hours. It wouldn't be millions of years, but it does represent a period of time. But then it, it took 10 days. Well, that would be ordinary days, right? Because it's got a number with it, 10 days. It wouldn't be 10 periods of time. You wouldn't say it that way. To drive across the Australian outback during the day, that would be the light portion of an ordinary day. It very clearly means that. And so you see, instinctively, we know what the word means because we use the surrounding words to constrain the meaning. We use context. Context always determines the meaning of a word, always. That's true in English and in any language. Most languages, words can mean more than one thing, depending on context. And so, for example, let's take a look at the Hebrew word for day, yom, in singular and plural form, outside of Genesis 1, where we all agree what it means, 
and see if we can find some patterns here. For example, we find that when the word day is used with a number, like the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, it always is translated day in every single instance. It's very clear it means an ordinary day in all the historical narrative literature of the Old Testament. Of course, if I said the third day, the fourth day, I'm talking about ordinary days. If evening and morning are used together, what's an evening plus a morning? It's a day, right? It's the first part of the day, second part of the day, add them up, you got a day. And that happens 38 times outside of Genesis 1. So even if the word day isn't mentioned, an evening and a morning is a day. If I had evening with day, evening associated with that there was evening that day, then you know I'm talking about an ordinary day. Or if I said there was morning that day, you know I'm talking about an ordinary day. So evening with day or morning with day happens 23 times each outside of Genesis 1. We all agree it's an ordinary day. If I said there was day, then there was night. Day, then night. You know I'm talking about an ordinary day and an ordinary night, right? They constrain each other. It happens 50 times outside, over 50 times outside of Genesis 1. We all agree it's an ordinary day. So these are some contextual indicators that demonstrate that the day is being used in its ordinary, primarily literal sense. Let's apply these to Genesis 1 and see if we can figure out what God meant when he said day. Verse, Genesis 1, verse 5. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So you have night associated with day. Got to be an ordinary day, right? And the evening, you got evening associated with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. And morning, you got morning associated with day. That's got to be an ordinary day. You got evening and morning together. That's got to be an ordinary day. And you got a number with it first. Got to be an ordinary day. Pretty clear, isn't it? Well, what about the other days of creation? Let's take a look at those and see what we find. Evening, morning, number, day. 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 It's pretty clear, isn't it? It's kind of like God's trying to say, see, they're ordinary days, and in case you still don't get it, they're ordinary days. And in case you're a little thick, they're ordinary days. And in case you're really intellectually challenged, they're ordinary days. It's pretty clear. People say, oh, but the sun wasn't made until the fourth day. It doesn't matter. It's the, it's the rotation of the earth, primarily, that determines the length of the day. The sun doesn't have much to do with it. The sun just provides a source of light. As long as you have a source of light and a rotating planet, you're going to have day and night. Did we have a source of light on the first day? Yes, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, absolutely. We had a temporary light source for the first three days, and then God replaces that with the sun on the fourth day, perhaps so that people would not be as inclined to worship the sun as many pagan cultures did. It's not the primary source of life. God is the primary source of life. So he displaced it by, by a few days, perhaps for that reason. Here the little boy saying, six days. The girl says, yep. The boy says, six truly, really days? Yep. You're sure it says six days? Yes. He says, I wonder why it took so long. Now, that's a good question, you see. God has the power to create the universe instantaneously. He really had to slow himself down to create in six days. And then he rested for one day. Was he tired? No, God doesn't get tired. Not at all. He did that as a pattern for us. See, we get tired. And, so, and God knew that. He made us. And so we get our, that's where we get our idea of a week. Did you know all the other units of time have a basis in astronomy? A day is a rotation of Earth on its axis. Uh, a month is the amount of time it takes the moon to go through its phases. That's where we get the word moon. It's a moon, a month. And a year is the amount of time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. Where do we get the idea of seven days in a week? Not from astronomy. It's from, that's how long it took for God to create and rest. And the Bible explicitly teaches that in Exodus 20.11. Exodus 20, you know that passage. That's the Ten Commandments. The, and you read verse 8. It's, it's the commandment about remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he goes on and explains in six days you'll do all your labor. The seventh is the Lord's. And then he gives the explanation in verse 11. Why is it that we're to work six days and rest one? Because that's what God did. He did that that way as a pattern for us. So if God had really created over millions of years and then rested a million years, we'd have an awfully long work week, wouldn't we? 
You'd never make it to the weekend. I'm going to literally, I'm going to skip some of these things for time's sake because I want to deal with the issue of does this really matter because that's another question people have. People say, well, it's not a salvation issue, right? And I'll say, well, it's it, not in the sense that you have to believe in six days to be saved. I understand that. We're saved by God's grace. There's no doubt about that. Received through faith in Christ. But at the same time, it is an important issue. It's very important. And it's kind, of, it's kind of like gravity. Gravity is not a salvation issue. But wouldn't you agree it's an important issue? Right? You cannot believe in gravity and still go to heaven. In fact, you'll probably get there a lot quicker that way. Right? It's, it's not a salvation issue. It's an important issue. And so it is with the days of creation. It's absolutely important. It's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's important because it's what the Bible teaches. We're not to treat the Bible like a buffet where we sort of pick and choose what we like. Uh, Not at all. It's the word of God. In fact, the the section that says, in six days God made the heaven and the earth, part of the Ten Commandments, that was written by the finger of God in stone. You better take that seriously. Of course, we need to take all the Bible seriously. It's all inspired by God. I just think it's interesting. The one place people want to compromise is the one place where God didn't even use a human agent. He wrote it himself in stone. That's where you want to compromise? You see, the same Bible that teaches that God created in six days also teaches things like the virgin birth of Christ, Jesus turned the water into wine, walked, the water, walked on water, calmed the storm, raised the dead, raised himself from the dead. The same Bible teaches both. But if you say, yes, but you know what? Most scientists say six days of creation, that's not possible. I think we need to reinterpret that. Well, I got news for you. Most scientists would say virgin birth in human beings, not possible. Turning water into wine, not possible. Calming a storm, not possible. Resurrection from the dead, not possible. You'd have to reinterpret those portions too to be logically consistent. Mm. And people say, well, I don't want to do that. I believe those portions. But it's the same hermeneutic. It's the same method of interpreting scripture. Are you going to allow secular scientists who reject God's word to tell you how you ought to interpret it? That doesn't make any sense. Some people will say, but wait a minute, Dr. Lau. Those things are miraculous. Those are miracles. Uh, wasn't creation a miracle? If not, let's see you do it, right? There's another reason though why we don't want to add the millions of years, and that concerns these fossils that we find all over the world. And we do find fossils everywhere, which, by the way, I would interpret it as evidence of a global flood. Because you find, uh, when you find these fossils, they're buried in sedimentary rock layers. Sedimentary rock layers are generally laid down by water. These are water-deposited rock layers, Okay. And you find fossils all over the earth. It's a worldwide flood. You find fossils of land animals and, and aquatic creatures. We have at ICR, we have a fossil of a little dinosaur and a fish right next to it. Now think about that. Because one of them lives in water, one of them lives on land. How do they get buried together? A worldwide flood would accomplish something like that. Well, anyway, there's a reason why we don't want to add in the millions of years. And that's because when you look at fossils, a fossil is a dead thing. And if you've got death millions of years ago, you've got death before Adam sinned, because we all agree human beings don't go back millions of years. Even the evolutionists concede that. But if you got death before Adam sinned, then death is not the penalty for Adam's sin. Ah, in which case, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? You see, it, it undermines Christian theology. The Bible says by man came death, but the secular view is by death came man. They are opposites. And you cannot reconcile those two things. They are contrary to each other. It's according to a scripture, there was no death at the beginning. Death is introduced as the right punishment for Adam's sin. It's a temporary part of history. It will be done away with in the future as a result of Christ's obedience. But according to millions of years, death has always been and will always be. Very different. Two different views of history. Here you've got the Garden of Eden. Eve, Eve saying, oh, Adam, this is such a, per- such a perfect world. Adam saying, yes, Eve, it's very good, just like God said. But if those fossils were already there, God had been 
you know, killing off animals over millions of years, and then finally gets around to creating Adam and Eve a few thousand years ago on the Garden of Eden. Then you've got the Garden of Eden sitting on top of millions of years' worth of pain, death, suffering, disease, bloodshed, and so on. You know, we find fossils with evidence of disease in them, things like cancer, arthritis, and so on. There's a whole field called paleopathology that studies disease in fossils. Now, were those, were, were those diseases already present when God looked and saw everything he'd made, and behold, it was very good? If you believe in millions of years, you have to believe that God's calling disease and bloodshed very good because they were already part of the world when God looked at it and called it very good. See, I believe those things came in after Adam sinned. And the world's not very good today. Okay? There's, there's a remnant of beauty in it, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of beauty in the world. But it's, no lo- it's cursed now. It's no longer the perfect world that it was when it was created. But you see, if you believe in millions of years, the world's always had death and suffering and bloodshed, carnivorous activity and so on. In which case, God's definition of very good really isn't very good, is it? And some people would say, oh, but, but um, I think it was just human death that entered the world at the time of Adam's sin. Animals were already living and dying for millions of years. I don't think you can defend that because scripturally, when Adam sinned, God actually instituted animal death at that time because he provided skins of clothing for Adam and Eve. Those would be animal skins. And so the implication is that God killed an animal or animals to provide skins of clothing for Adam and Eve. It's, and I think that's probably symbolic it's a, of the... Uh, sacrifice that would come. That was a temporary covering of their shame that pointed forward to Christ. And some people have said, oh, but at least you have to have plant death, right? Because they were eating plants. We know that. But uh, the interesting thing there is, uh, and yes, they were eating plants before sin, but the interesting thing there is plants are not considered alive by the biblical definition of life, which is slightly different than the modern uh, biological definition, okay? So biblically, plants, there, there's, a, there's a special word, nefesh in Hebrew, nefesh kaya or nefesh kai which indicates living creatures, and it applies to human beings, and it applies to at least the vertebrate animals, okay? But it does not apply to plants. Plants are never referred to in Scripture as nefesh kai, okay? So they're not alive biblically. We sort of know that, right? You know there's a difference between plants and animals. When a, when a plant, so you, know, you can talk about plant death, but that's not literal. It's not in the same way as an animal death, right? You can talk about a dead battery. That doesn't mean it was ever really alive, in the, uh, in the literal sense. And you know that. You come to a so-called dead tree in the woods. Well, that's nice. You say, I think I'll sit on that for a little while, take a picture of it, put it over my mantle. That's pretty. You come across a dead animal in the woods. You say, I think that's nice. I think I'll sit on it for a little while, take a picture of it, put it over my mantle. No? <laughs> but this, I mean, we look at something like this, and it's, it's disturbing to us, rightly, because this is an intrusion into a world that was once perfect. I could imagine that in the eternal state. There will continue to be a plant cycle. Plants are not living living things in the biblical sense. Plants are food for living things in the biblical sense. Uh, no, the Bible's clear that God made a perfect world that we ruined by rebelling against him, and the world will be perfect again in the future as a result of, uh, ultimately, of Christ's obedience. I'm going to skip some of these things for time's sake so I can get you out of here on time, but uh, I want to I summarize it with this. We have this cross series here. The, ch- the church is preaching a message. Come to Jesus, come to the cross, and be saved. That's the right message. We want to be preaching that, of course. But there's been an attack in the form of millions of years. That's one of the attacks on Scripture, and it impacts. And we're inclined to think, well, you know what? didn't hit the cross. Not a salvation issue. Don't have to worry about it. But really, millions of years is an attack on Genesis. Because if millions of years is true, then Genesis isn't. At least it can't be read in a natural way. And then we think, well, it didn't hit the cross. Satan's crafty. If he were aiming at the cross, we'd be concerned. You can, you can find books to defend you know, the resurrection. If, if people say, oh, Jesus never lived or he, he wasn't resurrected. No, you can find books to defend that. Satan's crafty. He's aiming at our foundation. And we think, well, that's just a side issue. 
It's not. It's a foundational issue. Is God's word true from the beginning? So then all these different attacks came. Age dating methods, evolution, eight million, millions of years, no global flood. They impact, and we think, well, you know what? didn't hit the cross, but really it was a direct hit. And the result is unbelief. Unbelief. If I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? That's exactly what we're finding in our society today. And so then when all these symptoms happen, newsflash, prayers out loud in schools, and we say, you know what? Trust in Jesus which we should do, but we're not dealing with the issue, you see. Uh, newsflash, creation outlawed in schools. And we say, Jesus is going to return. Yes, he is, but he's commanded us to do some things in the meantime, like make disciples of all nations. Newsflash, the Bible outlawed in schools. And we say, well, let's get the Bible back into schools. That's, that's a commendable goal, but it's not really dealing with the root of the problem. It really isn't. Ten commandments outlawed in schools. And we say, well, you know what? Let's concentrate on worship. That's the solution. We need better music. And that now that's not really, I'm, I'm all for good music, but that's not really dealing with the root of the problem. And so that's why organizations like the Institute for Creation Research come along. We're, we're a parachurch ministry. We're, we're all Christians, of course. We're all members of our local congregation. But as a ministry, we come along beside the church, and we want to repair the damage that's been done to Genesis and show you you can trust in God's word from the beginning, and the science supports that. And when all these different attacks come, we want to warn you that these are attacks on the Christian faith. And then we show you how to defend the faith against all these different issues using all the different resources that we have out there. That's why we write the books that we do and produce the DVDs that we do. It's there to show you how to defend the Christian faith against these different issues, something the Bible commands us to do. We're to contend earnestly for the faith that was uh, once delivered to the saints. And then we'd ultimately like to be in the background. We'd like everyone in the church to be able to defend the faith against all these different issues. And then the church can say, come to Jesus, come to the cross and be saved. And people will say, I get it now. I understand. I can see the Bible really is true. It's the word of God. It makes sense. It makes sense of science and history. And therefore, I can trust it on its message of salvation as well. It's because of what Adam did, that we're born into a world separated from God. We're sinners by nature, and we need salvation. Otherwise, we would ruin that new earth the same way we ruined the original. That's why God can't just let me into heaven apart from my sin being paid for by Christ. You know, God is just, and therefore... He will judge sin. He has to. Only a wicked judge would allow crimes to go unpunished. But God's also merciful, and he provides a way of escape. He's willing to take the punishment himself. You know, during the flood, God provided a way of escape via the ark. And I think that's kind of a symbol in a way of Christ. I mean, the ark, it's a real ark, don't get me wrong, but it pointed forward to Christ because it's interesting. The Bible says that God was the one that closed the door on the ark, indicating that he was the one who decided time of mercy is over, time of judgment is beginning. And of the perhaps billions of people that were on the earth at that time, only eight were saved because only eight responded to the gospel message. The Bible says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I'm sure he was out there preaching, come on board the ark and be saved. And only eight people, only his own family, um, received, that, received that message and in obedience went on board the ark. Well, that's why we do what we do. We have lots of resources that I would encourage you to get. And you can use this. You can use creation. You can use science as a segue into teaching people about the gospel to show them why they need a savior and then to show them that Jesus is that savior. We have books like Creation Basics and Beyond. Uh, I don't think we have this one here today, but we do have uh, my latest book, Understanding Genesis. If you want to be able to refute those people who say, well, I think the... Uh, uh, the days of creation are millions of years, or Genesis doesn't really mean what it says, that's the book that you can get, and it, it'll refute any of, any of those counterclaims. And there's a, 
Actually, only the first third of the book is showing you how to interpret Scripture, showing you the, the rules that are necessary, and the, the, the rest of it is application. I'm actually interacting with folks who don't believe in Genesis, and I'm showing you, or at least they don't believe in a, in a straightforward reading of it, and I show you how to refute those compromised positions. Very powerful resource. The ultimate proof of creation will give you a bulletproof argument for biblical creation. Very powerful resource that I'd encourage you to get. Uh, discerning truth, how to spot errors, logical fallacies in evolution. We have DVDs as well. My uh, DVD on astronomy. We have one on um, where I show you how God has built beauty into numbers. It's called The Secret Code of Creation. And we have Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky, How to Enjoy the Night Sky from a Christian Perspective with beautiful full-color star charts. That's just kind of a fun resource there that I'd encourage you to get. We're taking back astronomy, which is my more apologetic approach, where I'm showing you how the universe declares God's glory and not a big bang or billions of years. We have a sign-up sheet. Hopefully we have the sign-up sheet. We don't have the sign-up sheet. Okay. But you can, ch- you can get on the web and sign up for our free Acts and Facts. Check us out, icr.org. That's our website. If we don't have resources here, you can get them on the web. But try them here first because you're discounted if you get them here. And, uh, if, and the, the website itself is a great resource. We have thousands of articles and a search engine. So you can search for anything you want to find out about. Like where did the water for the flood come from and where did it go? And was there an ice age? And how do we account for, uh, you know, did, how did you get all the animals on the ark, as I talked about during Sunday school? So thank you very much for having me out to speak. I really appreciate it.